Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Born to Write. Today, we have Dr. Jenny Pratt, who's the, the founder of CraftEd. CraftEd is really geared and ready to help people, particularly teachers education, break through the project-based learning curve. I'm super excited to have her because we work together at an organization called High Tech High in San Diego, and it's so cool how paths cross and weave and interact, and I'm thrilled to have her. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Jenny. You know, what's really crazy is that in, in an organization like High Tech High, when we used to be able to meet with everyone in just one small classroom, grew to be such an enormous place. But in it, we kind of walked around many circles through the life of a teacher and creating this crazy PBL world. How did you get drawn into PBL before we start talking about your book? Oh, gosh, it's actually a great story. I had so I was teaching in a private school, super traditional, and I was going rogue and started doing PBL on my own before I knew that PBL was really a thing. And one of my students had toured High Tech High when it was first opening and came back and he was like, Mrs. Pratt, I found your people. You don't belong here. You belong at High Tech High. <laughs> and it was like, I had, I just, I had never heard of it. So I Googled that night and it just happened to be when it was hiring season and I got in and did the hiring bonanza and the rest was kind of history. All right. Where did you end up? What was your, what was your subject area of preference? I did everything from fifth to 10th grade and humanities was what I did like at the secondary level. I really enjoyed 10th grade. Like that was where I spent the bulk of my time. I just, I like, I liked that age group a lot. Right. What about PBL? So for those listening who don't know what project-based learning is, maybe they've heard of it, maybe they understood it, maybe they don't. Let's talk about what is project-based learning? How would you describe or characterize it? Oh, I love that question. It's different for everybody who you would ask. I'm certain of that. For me, I, I try to explain it to people as it's, you know, a real world based learning experience for students, something that's highly engaging, highly applicable to the world around them and um, a rigorous learning experience. So for me, it's ultimately about, you know, yes, we have to cover standards and we're held accountable for ensuring that students learn certain content, but it's really about making that into something that's meaningful for every child. And I, I believe really strongly that every child deserves to be engaged in their schooling experience. And unfortunately, that's just not the case for a lot of kids these days. Right. So when, when uh, you first dove in to this new topic of project-based learning, what was the biggest learning curve for you? Ooh, a lot. I mean, honestly, like I wrote my dissertation on project-based learning. I like lived, breathed it for 10 years. And Every single year, I felt like I was starting all over again because there was just so much to learn. Like for me, ultimately, the success of PBL for a teacher depends on you being highly reflective, right? So always looking at how you could do things better. <laughs> so I think there was always a learning curve, no matter how experienced I became with it. So I think really for me, it was learning how to create, how to make it manageable and sustainable. So, you know, doing things like creating benchmarks within my projects and just kind of approaching it from a sustainable position of how I could continue to innovate while still, you know, just not go crazy because it was, it was a big task always. Right. So you, you worked in schools, you were a classroom teacher, you also have your doctorate in education. When did you decide that, you know, you would make this transition to serving kids in a classroom to serving the adults that serve the kids? 
Well, when I left High Tech High, I worked for an organization called New Tech Network that was doing work similar to High Tech High, but on a, on a national scale. And it was a hard transition for me to leave kids in the classroom and move to adults because when we're, when you work with adults, the change is really slow and it's hard to see. It takes it just takes time. It's not like that immediate kind of return on your investment where you can see it every day in the classroom with kids. So as challenging as that was, I also felt like I could have a bigger impact when I could go sit down at a district level or with a principal and talk about creating change for a whole school and then stick around long enough to actually see it trickle down to the kids. I, I could just see my work exponentially having an impact compared to when I was in a classroom with only you know 25 or 50 kids. So I think really that work with New Tech made me realize that that was where I wanted to be was supporting adults. In a lot of ways, it was more challenging and still continues to be challenging for me. And I guess I'm kind of weird. I like that challenge. So I'm happy where I am now working with adults. That's awesome. Let's dive into the book because I want to talk a little bit about what's in the book, but also why you chose to write a book. So the book that we're talking about is Keeping It Real PBL, the elementary version, I guess, the elementary side. What was the impetus of writing a book and why did you choose to go with a traditional publisher with your book? Yeah, well, and I didn't initially. So I I had been doing my own workshops for a few years. And, you know, every time I'd go into a school, I'd, I'd kind of be creating these folders with all of these planning forms I was making. And it worked, but it was really messy. Like I'm, I'm kind of known for this whole process that I draw out on poster paper that just looks like a bunch of chicken scratch. And it's really the way my brain processes. It was just, it was a mess. And I was like, I got to figure this out because if I'm ever going to be able to leave something behind when I'm not there for teachers to be able to move the work forward. I, I got to I gotta wrap my arms around this. So um, I initially kind of sat down with all my chicken scratch and butcher paper. And it was, again, just really ugly and messy. And I put together the first edition, which is a tools for your craft. And it's a project planning workbook. And initially, I had just thought, you know, I'll self-publish and I'll just take this to the workshops that I do. And I started doing that. And it was receiving really great feedback. Like the teachers loved it. They were engaging with it. They were using it. And I thought, well, you know, could this stand alone, like by itself? Could I sell it on its own without me being there? And so I kind of just started dabbling with that. And sure enough, it picked up and I was able to sell over 3000 just on my website, which, you know, for a little old me that felt like, holy cow, you know, I was sending it to other countries and all these other states. And every time I was getting good feedback from teachers, so the touch points felt very real and it felt like it was something that was really being used by people. So I actually had been, it, it had just been on my list forever to get published by a publishing house. I don't know why. It was just a silly like self goal that I had. And I had worked on all these manuscripts and gotten pretty far down the road with a few publishers. And then I just, I could never get it across the line with these ideas that I had. And so the very last publisher that ended up picking up my book, Corwin, I had pitched them with my manuscript and they said, you know, we don't want this idea. But in looking at your website, we realized that you have this other book. And so they actually approached me and said, we'd like to pick it up. And it took probably four or five months for me to feel okay with letting go of my baby. That was a really hard kind of transition for me because of everything I had learned for, as a business owner and an entrepreneur, I felt like, gosh, is this really the right move? And they were great. Like the, my editor was so wonderful. We went back and forth on so many revisions of the contract until I felt like my work was really going to be honored and that they were really going to 
just partner with me because I had been not through a book, but through other different projects in my life. I had worked with other publishers where it was not successful. So I kind of knew what I didn't want. So they really worked with me to, to kind of establish a contract that we both felt good about. That's great. And when you started the process from like engagement to the, when the book will release, what's the timeline? How long is it? Will it have oh my, been? Forever. <laughs> and everyone warns you of that. But I, I really thought like, man, I've already self-published. Like how long could this take, you know? And maybe someone would say that this is quick in the world of publishing. I don't know. But I guess I first engaged with Corwin a year and a half ago. And it still is being pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. It's now supposed to print in October. So it will be just under two years, start to finish, with a book that I had already (laughs) already written. Right. Um, And the second book is for secondary teachers. And that one as of right now, is supposed to print in January, but I'm sure that'll get pushed back too. Right. What do you think the benefit is in going with a traditional publisher as opposed to keeping on your website, selling it to your clients or potential clients? Yeah, well, gosh, and I went through all these pros and cons and agonized over this for months. I think the big thing for me became shelf life. You know, like I knew I had reached everybody that I could. Like I had cast the web as far as I could with my workbook and I knew that I couldn't, I just couldn't do that much more with the reach that I had being little old me. So that was kind of the big piece for me of, you know, what's the advantage to having someone, you know, it not be my baby anymore, someone else kind of owning my ideas. So that I guess that was the big thing for me was just a matter of reach. Right. And like pushing me, right? Because I knew I could only push myself so much. I, I mean, I had done what I could with that book. And my editor and the reviews, like that whole process really challenged me to think about, where teachers are and what they really need. And that was a good process. That's great. So what what do you expect? So I always tell people that if you publish a book, I mean, you did really well with selling 3,000 copies of a book. You know, you have a platform, you have, it's a part of your business, so that's great. But 3,000 copies is not usual. Most books only sell a few hundred, to be honest, that are published. Sometimes even traditional books will only reach a very small audience. But moving it to with the publisher, what are your hopes and expectations as it builds the authority through writing a book? I mean, my big hope is that I can get in front of people that I wouldn't have been able to get in front of on my own. I think ultimately, it, again, it just comes back to reach. Obviously, when you publish a book like this, it only solidifies your position of an, as an expert, right? Like having it published by me versus Corwin it just says something different to people, especially the, the decision makers who purchase books for a district or who decide to bring in people for professional development. So I think really just continue to get in front of people and get in front of people as like the leading, not the leading voice of PBL, because I know I can't compete with the big dogs, but I have developed my own voice through this book. And so kind of like creating this little you know, this little side niche for myself that really says I'm a practitioner and I'm approaching PBL maybe in a different way than these big dogs are. And I, so I hope that just the title alone and kind of what, what I do with marketing the book helps me to be seen in that way. Great. Let's talk about marketing the book. What are you, what are you doing to get this book out there? I know you're kind of waiting for them to, to launch it, but what kind of support are you getting from the publisher for marketing and publicity and what are you planning to do? Yeah. So I'm pretending like they're not going to do anything. That, that's been my approach since day one. I have a really wonderful business coach who I've, who's worked with me since the very beginning of my business. And 
Luckily, she just happens to come from the publishing world too. So we have a pretty solid plan of action for how to get my book out. You know, we've started just kind of throughout social media, dripping hints about, and pre-sales are now live. So we've been kind of just slowly dripping that on social media and obviously across newsletters, you know, doing things like podcast interviews and having a, a book launch event. So again, I'm just functioning as if the publisher is not going to do anything. And if they do, that to me is just an added bonus. They have asked me to write a few blogs for them, which will be, again, nice coverage and to do an interview with them as well. But anything outside of that, I think can only help things, but I'm really just kind of bootstrapping it and depending on myself to market the book. Great. What sort of things do you think will have the most value or what, what have you experienced that has given the most traction in a book like this? Hmm, what do you mean by that? So let's say, where's your biggest effort in marketing? Where do you think that will be the most useful? I mean, a book about education, obviously educators are pretty, are the focus, but what, what would you do to kind of get it in front of the right people so that they notice your book when maybe they didn't know of you before? Oh, I see. Social media, right? And like the use of hashtags. I think I very much know my demographic now. I've been able to use analytics from both my website and social media. I've got it pinned. I've got it pretty dialed in. So using hashtags, tagging people and getting it on the channels where that audience shows up the most. Yeah. Let's talk about the process of writing. So you had a book idea. You already were using this, the skills and tools. Getting organized to write a book, what's that like for you now that you're obviously not required to write? I know in schools, getting a PhD, you wrote a lot. But when it's your work and you're trying to get organized, what, what does it look like? What does the writing plan or schedule look like to get a book done? You know, I don't know if other people do this. I haven't really had any. I've only had one friend who's published with a big publisher. I went on what I called my own personal writing retreat. So I checked into a hotel for three days and wrote for probably 18 hours straight each day. Like I didn't even leave. I had food ordered and sent to my room. I didn't even leave my room. Because for me, when I'm in it, like the ideas are just everywhere, you know, and they're just spinning around in my head. And it's hard for me to walk away from that. So I knew that I was in it. I had been, it was in November. So I had just come out of my peak professional development time being in school. So everything was fresh, like all of the concerns of all the teachers, all of the things I had been mocking up and working on with them, it was all really fresh. So I just, I took this really long roll of butcher paper and I actually, and this is super old school, but I printed out my book and just taped it all around the room so that I could see it laid out. And then I used painter's tape, blue tape, so that I could kind of move things around. And then I had sticky notes and I would just add ideas as they came up or as I needed to put something in a different chapter. So again, like super messy, but I'm really visual. So it was great for me to kind of see. And then I would send my husband a picture each night and I'd put a big X through like each section that I got through. So it kind of like I could see my progress to help me keep going. But it was it really, I, I got it all done in three days, which he he jokes with me about now. But, you know, it wasn't like I was starting from scratch. Like the ideas were all there and it was very much what I was already doing. So it was just a matter of getting it on paper. Right. And I think that's helpful to know. Some people take the approach where they write a little bit every day. Other people like yourself do a writer's retreat. I talked to another writer who wrote his memoir in the course of about about 10 days. Locked him. He went to a monastery and he asked if he could stay and he... he they weren't allowed to speak, but they were allowed to work. So he had to give a certain amount of service every day to be able to stay there. But because there was no one distracting you and no TV, and it was a really, I would say, sterile environment, he was able to produce his book in those those 10 days as well. And sometimes that works. So if you're listening and you're thinking, I don't have time, 
Well, it's not time. It's, it's motivation. It's effort. It's what you know, what you need to get out. What was the biggest hurdle once you decided you wanted to write this book? Besides that, obviously, 18 hours a day is a big hurdle. Right. Clearing your life for three days. Actually, and it wasn't. I'm very lucky. I have a really supportive tribe that like helped me pull that off. But I think for me, the biggest hurdle has been I'm such a doer and I'm not very patient. So it's been really hard for me to sit back and wait for other people to move this through. Like if it were up to me, this thing would have been in everybody's hands for back to school. So that, that's been hard for me to work on other people's timelines that just move. You know, nothing is more important to me than this. This is like my baby right now. Like this is my blood, sweat and tears in 165 pages. So it's hard for me to recognize that not everyone else feels that way and they're not going to push it through like I would. That's, that's been hard for me to swallow. What if you could get the reach you were looking for without going through a traditional publisher? Would you still do it this way? I don't, you know... Maybe one, but not two of the books, like maybe just for the experience of it, you know, being on my own and like running my own business, I do crave that collaborative nature and having people mentor me like I, I, I do miss that. So I, I liked it for that. I probably would have only done the elementary book and not the secondary or, you know, and I probably won't do this again, but it doesn't mean like it doesn't negate the value of the process of doing it one time. Right. What did you have to give up of anything of your, like, obviously you're the copyright holder, but what do you, are you able to make a course from this? Do you own the rights to the audiobook? Do you own foreign rights? What rights did you give up and what did you keep? So that was the piece that I went back and forth with them about for so long before I finally signed because I, I had to feel good about it. So they allowed me to continue professional development, to make e-courses, basically just in terms of written word, they hold the permissions on it. So obviously, I won't be able to continue selling my workbook once the second book is in print, because that would be in competition and be similar content. But outside of that, I have a good amount of freedom. So I, I feel good about that. But that did take a while for us to kind of get to an agreeable point and the, you know, the right legal language and all that. Right. How did you do the negotiation? Did you hire a lawyer? Did you have somebody that knew books? I know you said you had a a coach that knows a lot about poaching. What was your perspective on how to get help? My husband comes from business world. And so he really helped me through that process. I do have a few friends that gave me some legal advice that are lawyers that didn't charge me. They were very sweet to do that. And then the business coach, as you as you mentioned. Um, so it was kind of just a little bit of a, a village effort. <laughs> and then I reached out to my one friend who had published with another publisher just to ask you know, things I should be thinking about or what their experience was. That's great. Actually, several other, I guess, I don't know if they're all former high tech high teachers that I know they're published. I've had on the show, actually, Dominic Carrillo, who is actually a young adult fiction writer, as well as Scott Stanbeck, who also wrote a fiction novel. Uh, they talked about the process. Dominic does self-publishing. He likes to control the process. And Scott Stanbeck was, you know, had a really, he had a, a clear an acclaimed book. He was written and up in many journals. And his second book, he's had so much trouble with because now they're not they're not buying this book as the way they he thought they would. So it's an interesting process when you go into a world where you think it's going to be one way. When he he was able to take a, a sabbatical for a year because of the royalties he was making in his advance. So that's that's pretty huge for a first time writer, first time author. But as you're using this book to leverage yourself as an expert and kind of grow your platform as an entrepreneur and helping teach more teachers and districts about project-based learning. What's in the horizon? What's 
What's just out of reach that you see that could come in the future in relationships to books or publishing or using these books as tools to grow your business? Well, I just launched a series of e-courses that I'm hoping to see, you know, continue to grow that are all, you know, aligned with the content that's in the book. I think for me, the one thing I haven't done yet, but I see on the horizon is speaking engagements. And again, you know, hoping that this book helps establish myself as an expert so that people are, you know, interested in having me come and be, you know, whether it be a keynote speaker or a community-based speaker of some sort. But that is something that I, I would like to get into and try in the future. Right. I often tell people that one of the things they can do to leverage their expertise into their brand is to work on branding their personal brand. So Dr. Jenny Pratt would be a great brand. PBL is a thing. It will be around and many people teach it, but you're the only one of you. So having a, a voice that says, hey, yeah, and this is why I believe what I believe. And here's what I talk about is usually really helpful. And that's, you know, sometimes difficult when you've lived in a world where you're, you're constantly teaching the same thing in some regard over and over to just a different group of people. How do you keep it fresh? How do you show up to do these workshops and trainings when you are training something that's very familiar? Yeah. Staying relevant is probably the most challenging piece, I think, of all of this. And I think like a really quick story that is very much aligned to this question is just how I came up with the idea of the title of this book and the angle that I wanted to really take, which is keeping it real. So I have one of my really good girlfriends. She's in marketing and she's been a great kind of sounding board for me in terms of getting this book together. And she was like, you know... Jenny, I don't know anything about PBL. I don't know anything about teaching, but she's like, I do know Twitter. And I did a little bit of lurking and she's like, man, these teachers are struggling with PBL. Like you just need to keep it real. Like that, that's exactly how the title came up. And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, people love you because you keep it real. She's like, and then I read your blog posts and I see these videos and she's like, you're all like academic and formal. She's like, people don't want that. Like they want authentically who you are and what you stand for because it's different than what we're hearing in all these other places. So just that kind of like aha moment and really trying to make that the driving voice of my book has really trickled down into every other part of my business. Like I can see a very distinct difference between when I had that conversation with my friend and my social media posts now or my blog posts now. Like it to me, even how I plan my professional development workshops. Like it is completely different. Like I feel like I have a swag that I feel really good about because it's me and it was always there. And I think I didn't give myself permission to let that out because I was very much trying to do it the way I had always been trained to do it at high tech high or new tech or BIE. Right. Whereas now I feel more confident to say, you know what, I think we should do it this way. And I have enough background experience to say that it's okay to go this way if it works for you. Right. And that's part of that notion of you could either be an expert or I say a guru sitting up in a cave waiting for people to come to you with all the knowledge. Or you can be a guide. Say, look, I'm 10 steps ahead of you or 200 steps ahead of you. This is what's worked for me. You could do it this way or you could try it your own way. But let's march forward because a guide makes you feel like you could do it too. And so that keeping it real probably is really helpful for teachers who are you know, not everyone gets supported in PBL. You know, my three teachers might be doing it in a team where the others aren't. And it's it's a risk. They're taking a risk to say, hey, look, we're going to try something totally different. We're going to shift. The world's shifting, but schools are shifting slowly. How do you keep your edge when you're going into school to say, yeah, I think we should continue to make a, a change or a stride towards doing something different like PBL? 
I actually just wrote a post on this for my publisher, actually, and it was called Why PBL Makes Me Unapologetic. And it's very much about, you know, you're right, it's hard. <laughs> like that part of the work is really tough, like going into places that maybe aren't ready for the shift for a variety of reasons. And I think at the end of the day, I remind myself that it comes down to three things. One, it's about the kids. And I will never apologize for doing something that I think is good for kids. The other being that it's about empowering teachers when I think a lot of teachers have been, you know, deprofessionalized and demoralized. And this is an opportunity to build them up in their skill set. And the third is I've seen what it does as, you know, shifting communities. So for me, I guess I continue to work in all of these different avenues, right? Whether it be publishing or professional development, because I really believe that supporting those three things, like you can't ever go wrong with that. Right. If you had any advice for somebody who wants to take their expertise and put it into a book, what would you tell them? You know, every, I'm, I'm sure you know, and in this work, everybody's journey is so different. I think, I think there was a really great value for me in self-publishing initially, right? Like it helped me figure out what worked and what didn't work so that I didn't go blindly into the process of just signing all my ideas away to the publisher. So I think if, if someone has it in them, like it takes a special kind of discipline and hustle to self-publish. But I do think that it's a really great learning experience that just can only help you if you decide that you, you know, you want to publish with a larger publisher down the road. Great. Well, this has been awesome. I love that see the people that we've worked with in collaboration or even from afar, because I didn't work in North County and high tech high where you were, but I do know that the teachers that make a big difference are the ones that take what they've learned and put it out into the world. Thank you so much, Jenny, for being one of those teachers and really leading the charge for keeping it real in project-based learning. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Where can people find you if they're looking to follow up and know where you are so we can put it in the show notes? Um, my website, so craftedcurriculum.com, and then on social media. So I've tried to keep the same handle across all channels. It's at crafted underscore Jenny P or Jenny Pratt. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story, how they got there, and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at Coach Azul dot com.